0: up guys welcome back to the uncensored critic podcast thank you for tuning in again i really appreciate it as always thank you as always for tuning in i appreciate it enormously and today is a very very special episode for me to be recording today because we have without this man i would not have a podcast and of course we welcome back to the show harry burton uh and was last time we recorded this, I never intended for our episode to become a podcast, but uh, it did, and it started the Uncensored Critic, and I'm on this journey, and I have him to thank for for this one. And I'm aware that last time I didn't give this man an introduction, and he he doesn't need one, but I'm going to give him one anyway because the work that this man has done in theatre over the last over the last few years has just been incredible, and of course on television as well. Uh, Harry is one of the leading experts, possibly the leading expert in Harold Pinter. He's an actor, director, theatre maker, and some of his directing credits include, most recently, The Dwarves, which was Harold Pinter's first ever novel, which was adapted into a play last year, the White Bear Theatre in London. He's directed Mark Rylance in Art, Truth and Politics at the Harold Pinter Theatre, uh, Jason Isaacs and Lee Evans in The Dumb Waiter, and, and the maestro behind a Channel 4's Working with Pinter documentary. Other appearances include In the Fortunes of War with Ken Branner and Emma Thompson, A Summer Story, Tears in the Rain, Agent Cody Banks 2, The Trial with Anthony Hopkins, and Midsummer Murders. And if that's not enough, you've also got an incredible YouTube channel where you share some of your own podcasts and interviews with some amazing, amazing people who've worked with Pinter over the years, uh, such as Indira Varma, uh, David Laveau, and so many, so many more that I can't... Philippe Wilton, yes, I saw her in London. Tristan Hodge. Tristan Hodge, yeah. And also, also uh, shout out to Run it, it Shouting, Charlie, as well. You know, some great interviews on there. Of course, with Douglas Hodge as well, who I you know you've worked with a few times. And yeah, and first of all, thank you, Harry, for not only joining me, but for this
1: podcast. How are you? <laughs> I'm very well, Ollie. Nice to see you. And, and um, you know, I'm thrilled that uh, that first conversation that we had turned into something Um, creative and uh and and nourishing for other people that's really delightful
0: yeah no it's um it's been one of my second highest viewing video on youtube alone you know it's broken over 500 hits nearing a thousand now and um so one comment on there saying simply thank you for this interview and so so people people love you man
1: (laughs) but we didn't do video it was audio only or i can't remember
0: yeah it was just audio yeah because uh funny the story was uh, I was writing all these notes down like a, like a crazy person because he's like you had all these amazing facts and you stopped me and you said Oliver oh, do you have one of those smartphones one of those phones that records do you have one of those and I was like yeah I do so I took it out pressed record and recorded our conversation and that and that became it that became the episode and uh so yeah so what I wouldn't be in here so without you sir so thank you for that thank you for your advice <laughs>
1: I'm delighted it's great and well done.
0: I know, thank you man, thank you. Um so last time because it wasn't really a podcast I have a starter question now for every guest which is which I've been dying to ask you actually. Uh where did it all start for you the love of theatre acting and
1: art in general where did it all come from? Uh, uh there is a theatrical bit to my family so um my mum my mum was an actress. Um and she sort of She became a single mum. My my parents divorced when I was about five or six, and my mum became a single mum, and and that basically meant she had to give up acting, because, as we know, it's quite a precarious way of making a living. Um, And she then spent a lot of the rest of her life teaching acting or teaching in various drama schools, uh, particularly Rose Bruford, where she had been um, one of the very first students and and she'd been mentored by rose bruford herself mm-hmm. um so it, it you know it was in it was in my my blood in that in that way and then i suppose you know I, I um i sang in choirs and things and but then you know at primary school i i did kind of just find myself up on stage doing you know these funny little plays that the music teacher would write or whatever i'm talking about when i was like 8 9 Mm. years old. And I, I I have a kind of, I don't know if I've invented it, but I have this distinct memory of seeing my mum's beaming face in the audience. Now, you know, um, that's always uh, a, a very um, encouraging and uh, exciting thing, just to see the approval of your, you know, quite tough mum. <laughs> I mean, she wasn't that tough when I was eight. She was a lot tougher later. But uh, So I think I was probably intoxicated by by you know, mum's beaming approval, and mm-hmm. then um, jump cut to like uh, you know, sixteen years old. I was at, I was at uh, a school I wasn't happy at, um, but this this English master had been an, an actor at the Royal Shakespeare Company, a man called Brian Robson. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd become the head of English at this school, but he he'd spent a good number of years being not just being professional, but being at the RSC. Mm-hmm. And um actually I've I've got a photo of him. Oh, hang on. Yeah. yeah. I didn't see oh, the picture. I'm curious. Oh, there he is. There he is. He died a couple of years ago. So I, you know, um I, I, he got hold of me by the scruff of the neck and he put me in a play, fantastic play called The Long and the Short and the Tall, which mm. was a, a an army play set in the Burmese jungle in the Second World War. So we had uniforms and st- Den guns and um, this, the art master made this fantastic set of this little hut in the middle of the jungle. It was electrifying, <laughs> and um, it absolutely changed my life. It, uh, there was there was one of those moments that actors, if they're lucky, get early on and then chase for the rest of their careers. Mm. It's a bit like a, an alcoholic, you know, trying to kind of recreate the moment of of having that that glass of champagne overlooking that beautiful sunset with that beautiful woman or you know but one of those moments happened you know we were 16 but there was 150 family you know um mums and dads and brothers and sisters but that thing happened which was like the magic of stories that that suddenly yeah. nobody knew what was going to happen next uh, you know um it was electrifying it was just one of those things that stories can do where Everyone's molecules get rearranged at the same moment and and suddenly the stakes are off the off the charts and it's you're all just leaning over the edge of a, of, a, of a precipice. and um you know actors actors get one of those moments early on quite often, and then you know it, you're, you're hooked. Hmm. I was hooked. I was hooked. amazing so, and I went you- then I went to then I went to central um you know in the yeah. early, early 80s. I, I trained at the central school yeah what was your training like at central i had a great time um lovely lovely people a group of staff who had been together for a while so there there was that kind of very grounded sense of um continuity in the training um they worked together very well yeah there were some wonderful outside directors who came in um i wrote a piece recently for the um the actor's yearbook which is coming out quite soon i wrote a little essay um i was asked to write something about an actor who becomes a director and it made me think back to all the people that we were exposed to um out particularly outside directors people who pros who came in to work with us in the second year or the third year um and i and i found myself writing a kind of um misty-eyed love letter to these people because they 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 really made such an impact uh, Wing Davy, barty thomas um pennycas dugley uh yeah so uh, i i loved my training i mean it wasn't perfect um but we had none of the the bollocks that uh, that the, the sector has had to go through wow. in the last um well it's got worse and worse you know yeah. the, the closure of drama center the closure wow. of alra uh, the you know yeah. drama schools have started to to fall away wow. um and it's very uh it's it's very sad and we begged them not to introduce degrees and uh mesh drama schools with universities they wouldn't listen and now the whole model is is collapsing Really, yeah
0: so would you say that the the closures was because it became almost too academic in in some senses
1: well it's not that it's not that the courses themselves become academic it's not that the actors themselves are having to do a lot of academic work but Mm. but fundamentally universities and acting schools um are so far apart in terms of in terms of their understanding of what i mean what i saw at drama center was that the academic hierarchy Mm. of the university of the arts looked at drama center and thought what the hell have we done why have we brought who are these weirdos at the end of the at the end of of granary hall Mm. um, but they weren't interested in trying to find out what 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 acting training was about. All they did was was look look at it from a distance and say, "How can we get rid of this? These people are, are are you know weird." Um, I mean, there there were one or two other factors as well. But it uh, you know if you put together an academic hierarchy with an with a vocational training. Um, it, it's not a happy marriage, and mm. uh, I think quite a few of the schools—the pressure to for, for the drama schools to make money, the creation of of frankly um, bogus courses mm. uh, in order to pull in more young people and their dream of becoming professionals. A lot of overseas students who pay double, treble, mm. bubble. So so that the universities the universities in this country have become very much on the American model. Um, factories for printing money and you know the legal departments of these of these universities that have got acting schools are the biggest department the the best funded departments in those universities Mm. Um, they're so terrified of publicity of negative publicity and so on um you know uh it it all became a terrible terrible mess at drama center For, for for example i happened to be around there at the time so i saw it close up and um in the end they just they just poured concrete on it like chernobyl they just wanted to seal it off so no nothing could ever escape from that site you know yeah and, and now drama center which only 5 years earlier had been voted the best drama school in the country now yeah. how does that you know there should have been an inquiry of some kind yeah um anyway don't don't start me off
0: Right. <laughs> I could imagine um I could imagine Harold probably having the same opinion of these things you know sitting Yeah, it,
1: it, he would have been ap- 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 apoplectic with yeah. some of the insanity that that uh yeah, not just in the academic world but you know the political world as well and um Christ oh, yeah. and I think Boris Johnson would have would have get, uh, he would have had a heart attack and died all over again. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: I would love to have um I would love to have just seen Harold or just talked to him about not only just Boris, but like just things about his politics and everything. I think I mentioned to you last time that I watched the uh, the speech he gave when he won the Nobel prize. And it mm-hmm. was just a, a beautiful, well, I would say a beautifully um, constructed argument. I would say the way he spoke here sort oh, of was yeah. amazing yeah. about the contradictions and the atrocities that he targeted towards America at the time. And yeah. it, you know, And again, there was that story of uh, a US diplomat went up to Harold and said, oh, I really enjoyed your plays. And Harold just went, don't talk to me. Don't talk to me. Putting it politely. Yeah, putting it very politely. Um, uh, First of all, um, you you sent me the link to your documentary that you did uh, with Pinter and I absolutely loved it. It was a really, really beautiful documentary, Harry. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, One thing that I really took a lot of things away from it, really. But uh, one thing I want to start you off about, Harold, again, today is they talked a lot about him and um, Henry Wolf, who sadly left us uh, quite recently. You know, unfortunately, God bless him. But he um, he said, quote, technique is good, but we need the real thing. So he needed to. So he said actors need to be heard, need to be standing in the right spot, knowing where you are. And have an intuitive road of discovery and finding it in yourself and uh, well mo- mostly in yourself you know you, I nearly said and in others but ultimately it's for yourself sure. and that's something that him and Harold talked about a lot and I think that's quite key to, to, to not only just Pinter's work but to training to find that presence and he also mentioned it was like a natural thing whether you have it or you don't
1: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. so does that does that make sense am I on the right lines there
1: well I think you, of course, you are, and and I and I, you know, it, it, in some ways, it's a very, um, it's certainly a very pared back kind of understanding of of acting. The way that Harold and Henry talk about it, um, they are, of course, old school, mm. um, and they were brought up and indeed acted as very young actors. They acted with people from the old school, Donald mm. Orford, um, and new McMaster, These these individuals, whose uh, the word you've just used, presence. Yeah. Um, had a kind of magnificent shameless theatricality to it. Mm. Um, and that's what they were brought up on. Um, I'm reading a marvelous book at the moment by Brian Forbes uh, about the history of British acting and you know um, there have always been individuals who've come through and kind of uh, reignited uh, the the kind of flame of of great of great acting. Um, but actually, if you think about it, what Harold's really talking about when he talks about a, an intuitive road of discovery and of the act of finding it, finding it deep within themselves, um, actually, that's not a description of great act, of great acting. It, it, it's a description of, of quiet acting, of um, of balanced acting, of uh, something that, that isn't showing off necessarily. Mm. But yeah. that is actually aiming for the truth, um, and I think what 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 Harold's understanding of acting, which came from being an actor himself and from then writing these uh, quite extraordinary um, plays with with this extraordinary poetic dialogue or poetic speech, and I think. There couldn't he couldn't really talk about it any other way than than in its in, in somehow in its simplest terms. Yeah. Um because when you when you when you bring when you boil it down to an intuitive road of discovery, you're really doing wh- what he also said in the film, which was finally all all it's about is that something has to be happening, <laughs> you know. He even he even began one of his plays um a kind of Alaska with that line mm. the woman wakes up from a from a thirty year sleep and says something is happening you know um it, it's kind of the the essence of mm. theatrical uh power and the something you know the theatrical uh quality mm. and yet there is a certain point where talking about it no longer is helpful and and so I think you know Harold would have I mean, I, obviously, I can't speak for him, but I—I well, I mean, I have talked to him quite a lot about acting. He did direct me as a young actor, um, and and indeed, on my on my bookshelf, there's a, a diary kept by an assistant director called Paul Veeson in 1961 or two, when he was helping assisting Harold on, on a production of The Dwarfs when it was first to play, mm. and Paul Weeson actually writes down in in his rehearsal diary, Harold stopped rehearsals today to implore the actors to stop thinking too much and and actually to trust themselves more and mm. to go for instinct and intuition rather than analysis um so even but you know by that point harold was what uh, 30 31 mm. um so even already as 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 early as that harold was trying to get actors to stop bloody well analyzing things and just try stuff you know come come at the lines with a great um sense of adventure and experiment and be bold be brave see how things work Mm. i mean there's that moment in my film where where harold i say to one of the actors um to pete sullivan you know what what did you learn from doing that and harold says don't talk to actors like that don't make (laughs) don't you know what what are you doing making actors analyze what they've just done now of course I was you know filming a workshop so I was trying to to make it make it um lively um and some actors quite like talking about what they've just done but Harold thought that was you know really uh crossing a line too intrusive mm. let leave an actor alone if he's trying to find his way and there's a director saying what did you find what did you find you know Harold was on the side of the actor mm. So I think all these, you know, I've got books on my shelves written by Stanislavski, written by Michel Sander, written by, you know, Michael Chekhov, um, and and many others, and and sometimes they lose me completely. I mean, I'm quite a simple soul, really, um, and so I'm with Harold and Henry, uh, oh. in the end, especially now. I've spent ten years or so trying to not teach acting, but trying to help ac- young actors develop and find their presence, find their confidence. Hmm. I I really. Um, I'm, I might even write my own little little slim book about it because no, um, do. Do. I, I think uh, I think it's I think it's been overcomplicated. I mm. think there's much too much talk about you know a tradition from over a hundred years ago, Stanislavski and this whole thing. Of course, the influence is there, and yes, we should take our hats off and say thank you to the ancestors. But what the hell can we say now to someone who's stuck, someone who who can't stand the sound of their own voice when they're acting you know how do you get your focus off mm-hmm. that back onto the text back onto making something happen and i think that's that's what it comes down to and i think harold was was really mostly interested in in that but yeah. as as he says in that in the quote that you started this this bit with um you can't teach it you you know it an actor if an actor can't find that in themselves probably the talent isn't there
0: hmm and um it's it's you know what you mentioned there about is the talent there and i think harold and henry said something about you've got to have like the natural ability for you've got to have a natural way of of doing it whereas if you don't have it then you don't have it
1: and um it's very hard to teach yeah so what what you what you can do is help people um uncover what's blocking them hmm. now if there's talent behind the the roadblocks and you can clear the road then the talent will come through and that's a great that's a really exciting thing to do and that of course is what drama schools for But yeah. hopefully you can you can identify that this person does bring a presence they have got something that that is exciting to to be in the room with mm. um but you know there's maybe there's something that we can help them uh, let go of mm. maybe they can be encouraged to get out of their own way yeah. and let that talent you know come through i had a great experience last night oliver i went to see um uh, completely not not completely but almost entirely on spec i went to the bush theater to see a play called um, playlist for the revolution mm-hmm. uh, and not 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 one but two of my ex-students were playing the two leads um and uh, i knew about one of them but i didn't know about the other one and uh, mm-hmm. So I've had the experience quite a few times of hopefully being useful to those people as they've gone into their training and seeing them on the other side really yeah. tearing it up. Having you know, I was so proud. Honestly, it made me made me immensely proud to see these yeah. two uh, uh, really just doing their thing. You know, uh, free, free yeah. to to be expressive, free to to move. There were there were there were bits where they were dancing. There were bits where they were very emotional. There were bits where they were very funny. Oh, so proud. Yeah. Proud moments, man. But I think um, what what you were talking about that in your
0: own uh, conversations about Pinto, I think you spoke to Indira Varma on, on your YouTube channel as well, who I know you've worked with. And she, in in that episode, said that Howard came up to her one day and said something along these lines. He said, if you just tell the truth, then you can do anything. Yeah. And ultimately, I think, and, you know, having been to drama school last year, I think, and working through sort of my own sort of blockages and now thankfully on the other side of that you know it all comes down to just uh, you know you're trying I think what you said about the, the analytical mind you're thinking about okay so it's almost like one part of my brain's going okay so this is my next line and then this is the line after that and then the other part of my brain's going okay we need to feel this at that point another point is okay we need to think those things without looking like we're thinking these things and then the other thing is like and then on top of all that they're going and be natural so how can I be natural? There is all yeah. these things going on, but yeah. um, but and then also, someone like me yeah.
1: adds adds on top of all that. I would be saying, have fun,
0: have fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like like what, what do I do? What do I do? Exactly. But, but um, but ultimately, it's all about just finding the truth of it and just trusting that the the, the lines are there and everything is is that is absolutely is absolutely spot on and just knowing that you trust yourself enough to know that it's all there. And well, I worry.
1: think I I really like. Like that I love trust yourself I think that's I think that's wonderful mm-hmm. um when I did that little piece with Mark Rylance uh the, the the on one of the nights that we did it there was a glitch and the curtain I was sitting in the audience but the the curtain didn't go up and I thought after about five minutes I thought what the, what's happening yeah so I nipped round through the pass door uh to see if I could catch a stage manager's eye as if to say you know that was What's going on? And, and I did see the stage manager, but she was standing quite close to Mark, and Mark had gone in. I think this is his practice. This is what he does before he goes on. He'd just gone inside and was completely still, eyes closed. I think meditating, breathe, just breathing in and out. Mm. But he was doing what he could do in order to let go of. And trust himself, uh, let, let, and let go of any resistance to being fully present, to being as present as possible. Mm. Now, I think that the, the thing that I often feel is is somehow not sufficiently drilled home in training is that if you've got two, three weeks rehearsal, if you're doing a play, you know, probably not just a, a, a scene or, a, but if you've got two weeks, three weeks, four weeks rehearsal to to put on a play that you're going to do thirty times you know there comes a moment yes you meet the audience in preview or on the press night and it's hair raising and you know some of the planning wobbles a bit and maybe oh. a wheel comes off here or there <laughs> um, but the but the the fact is you've done your work you if you and especially if you've been well directed and you've got a supportive company around you you have permission to have the confidence of saying to yourself I know what my moves are. Hmm. I know, because I've I've practiced, I've said that line 18 different ways in rehearsal, and with the director, we've identified maybe the two readings of that line that are absolutely in the center of the dartboard, in the bullseye. I can let go of controlling the the minute moment-to-moment life and just trust that what comes out of my gob on the night is enough, Hmm. Because I've done my work. You know, I, I'm ready. Yeah. Um, and I, I see too many actors, and I of course I've been there myself as a younger actor, um, straining to be perfect or straining yeah. to kind of, you know, through effort. And in the end, my own philosophy is that acting comes down to um, the application of effort that is that is helpful mm. and quite often over application of effort that is less helpful yeah finally what i saw mark rylance doing was actually making an effort to let go completely Mm. and to me that was that was very um inspiring yeah what's it what's he like to work with and as a person mark rylance oh well i i mean i saw mark Mark played Hamlet at the at Stratford on Avon in the early nineties, I think. Mm-hmm. So I was five or six years into being an actor. My friend Paddy was playing Osric, and I went to Stratford to to watch it. And I've never—I mean, this is slightly um, exaggerated, but but in a way, it isn't. I never really recovered from seeing Mark play Hamlet. He played Hamlet in pajamas, um, mm-hmm. like like Hamlet, almost like Stanley in the Birthday Party, like like. Yeah like hamlet couldn't quite get get his shit together um, <laughs> and and had kind of begun to kind of spend the day just wandering around in his in his pajamas and people were beginning to go he's he's mental yeah. um and um it was so beautiful it was so moving it was so truthful and played from this very childlike imagination and playful and grief stricken i mean just the character Hamlet was so broken with with sorrow and sadness, and nobody could help him. Nobody could come to him. Nobody could hold him. Nobody could touch him. Nobody could, you know, Ophelia. A, a if she if she wanted to, would just, you know, uh, be rejected. So, um, apart from the fact that it cured me of thinking I should play Hamlet, because it genuinely after that I thought, well, I, I've seen it. I've seen Hamlet. I've, yeah. I've met yeah. this is Hamlet. I've seen a, I've seen a lot of Hamlets. But, but Rylance is for me for my temperament and imagination so i've I, i'm a huge fan of Marx, and um i've i've spent a, a very little time a little bit of time with him over the years every now and then uh we share certain passions um but to me he's he's the ideal he's 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 an an ideal of of what an actor can be because In spite of all the success, winning Oscars, winning Baftas, um, you know, I love those moments where he stands up in New York at the Tonys, and instead of saying "I'd like to thank my agent," he reads a, you know, he recites a poem from memory, and doesn't and doesn't explain it, doesn't qualify it, doesn't doesn't um, contextualize it. He just is like, "Here you go, here's this." (laughs) I I love that. I love that quality. And to work with him, to work with him, very uh, albeit briefly, we had a week's rehearsal maybe for the thing that we did um you know just so collaborative inclusive interested grateful um everything a director could dream of i mean i I barely dared to direct him but he did actually want some help and support and um you know because i could i could tell him a lot about harold he the weirdest thing was he'd never ever done a, a pinter play he'd barely read pinter so um Coming to to Pinter's Nobel Prize speech, which is this, you know, as you've just said yourself, it's a yeah. pretty um, astonishing piece of prose that 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 actually, in a, in a way, is a kind of poetic encapsulation of Harold's entire philosophy. Um, anyway, Mark came to that to that as fresh as anybody could, and that meant it was just delightful. I could feel I was really being useful to him and um you know I, I i i go and see what he's what he's doing and send him love notes <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, uh, so yeah i think he's i think he's great and i think he's you know what back, back in the day at the globe um he made I, i've never acted at the globe but um i've seen a few shows there mark and a couple of other people were the i mean but especially mark I, I saw very few people really Uh, get on terms with that space. Mm. Uh, But Mark's uh, technique, vocally, his breath, his breath control, his um, and obviously his facility with Shakespeare, which, you know, he has this rare, rare thing, which which means that he has the ability to make it sound as though these ideas and images and thoughts have literally just popped into his mouth and he's just he's just sharing them as they come. I mean mm. that is that's as good as it gets, but in that space, right. you know mm. with, with, with people over there and people over there, pillars, aeroplanes <laughs> and helicopters there and yeah. there.
0: I mean Hems, I just boats on the side yeah, <laughs> exactly.
1: he made he makes it look he makes everything look so incredibly easy and simple mm. without any sacrifice of complexity or or poetry. And, and of course he does have a facility for the poetic, the melancholic. Um, the mythological he's very interested in those in those things philosophically, but but he also always has been in touch with those things as an actor. It's just part of his of his own makeup. Mm. And you know, it, I, I think what he found in Pinter was a a poet dramatist. And of course, what does Mark know most about Shakespeare? Thanks, you know, man. and I don't think it's I don't think it's wildly outrageous to say that Shakespeare and Pinter. And a few other dramatists, Tennessee Williams, um, yeah. you know, Chekhov. That these people belong in a certain not 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 necessarily at the top of of Mount uh, Olympus as gods, but they but they they used poetry or poetic imagination, mythological imagination to make their drama. And I think that's what we've I think that's what we're out of touch with at the moment. And it's why quite a lot of theatre seems a bit uh, a little bit lacking in
0: something. Yeah, and funny enough, Mark Rylance is currently appearing at the Harold Pinter Theatre at the moment. You know, he's in uh, which I'm going to see on Saturday. Um, you know, just hearing you say that now, just him being in that theatre, you know, with the poetic, you know, grasp of language that he has, you know, mm-hmm. it's going to be a real, a real treat. I think you know, it's he's, a wonder,
1: amazing show, yeah. amazing show. I've seen it, um, and that's also the theatre where where he performed art truth and politics that's right that's right yeah yeah there yeah. is actually a, there's a video of, of it of his performance embedded somewhere in my um youtube channel <laughs> probably uh uh in breach of copyright but i but i think the Nobel institute would understand if anybody <laughs> wants to um if anybody wants to 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 watch that that they should write to you and um i'll share the link with you and you can you can uh, help them to to watch it
0: Cool. Yeah. And so my my email address is down below, guys. Get in touch. Uh. Yeah. So uh, funny enough, I just I do. I just this thought coming to my head now about um, you know, I just feel about you know the Pinto. You know, he gets a lot of I don't I don't want to say bad press, but a lot of people say he's all about manipulation and he's all about dominating the room and he's also about like you know carving out this quite sinister um approach uh well what, what what's that play that he wrote about he based you mentioned in your documentary about the the prisoners in turkey um he wrote it as sort of a the,
1: sp- a the specific play that came out of his interaction with the turkish embassy uh was one for the road one for the road yeah that's it that's it and, very uh, short very 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 brief and utterly um terrifying
0: yeah, because, you know, just, the you know, you mentioned, in, and again, in your documentary about how, you know, he really pushes those boundaries. And, you know, it's almost like Pinter had this, you know, there's a few things where he sort of saw something or thought a certain word or sentence. And then he was able to go home and just just write it out and then develop stuff. I think another example of that being uh, no man's Land, which I want to talk to you about today as well, how he just got out of a taxi one night <laughs> and just heard in his head as it is. Okay. and they just wrote it just went over and wrote it out um yeah. but funny enough at the Pinter theater recently was a play called um uh, i've mentioned this a few times on the show was um a little life i'm not sure if
1: you uh got the chance to see it at all but i heard quite a lot about it but i, I yes i, I wasn't yeah, tempted I, I can't afford it to be honest i can't afford it. <laughs> but i did hear about it
0: did you see it I did. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh it, it was very, very tough going. You know, you saw, you saw this, I don't know if you've read the book or anything, uh, a little life, but I can recommend it story of abuse and power. You know, a, I think Harold would have, would have enjoyed it to be fair, to see what specifically for my taking was, it was an attack on the Catholic, the, the Catholic church mm-hmm. and the priests uh, specifically and the long-term effects mm-hmm. of um childhood abuse and childhood trauma in a way. And it was, beautifully well done, beautifully acted in a way. And, and I get the vibe with Harold that he likes to push boundaries in the theatre. He likes to bring up topics, especially with his politics, for stuff for people to see what was going on. Um, but my question for you is, do you think theatre can keep pushing those boundaries or do you think there is a limit, do you think, to how far it can go?
1: Mm. Well, I think it's a very good question for, for now. Um, there are things happening in the collective you know uh in the news and um things to do with the climate things to do with uh health pandemic Mm. you know things that that are still unfolding and sorry there's a helicopter going over shepherd's bush um fly over <laughs> And I think uh, I think we are in a time where there's so much there's so much fear and um, uncertainty about just being on the planet right now. You know, and and the system that we live in for better or worse capitalism, you know, is all about stuff and owning stuff and tech and um, having what you need. And I need to have an iPhone and, a, you know, um, but none of that's working. You know, none of it's because because there are these bigger things going on that that, that are like, um, you know, see these videos of people on the roofs of their cars being carried along a, 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 a torrent of flood water coming down a, a mountainside. And you think, you know, what what would I have done? What the, you know, yeah. If did that woman survive? Did those people make it? You know, we don't know. Now, you know, Harold was always interested in, you know, Harold's literary hero was, Beckett, Samuel Beckett. Mm. And Harold said something about Samuel Beckett, which I think is always worth repeating, which is that he felt the reason he admired Beckett so much was he felt that Beckett had smashed a mirror. The mirror that we all constantly catch sight of ourselves in and go, oh, look, there I am. You know, how am I how am I looking? How am I doing? Mm. Beckett had smashed that mirror, let's call it ego, mm. and had somehow in his writing. Passed through to the other side of that mirror and was now looking back at the world from that angle, trying to tell the truth, trying to tell it like it is. Now, you know, we all know from just from just from trying to get to the tube uh, every morning or whatever we're doing, how hard it is to just to hang on to an intention. Um, You know, today I'm going to stay aware of my breath, of my breathing. I know that I feel better about myself and the world. I'm less fearful when I breathe. So today, mm-hmm. and within five minutes, you know, you've forgotten to that, that was what you were going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, for for that's what makes literature so so fascinating is that people dedicate themselves to developing a craft with language and with uh, subject matter clearly that, that appeals to them, so that they actually become profound tellers of of the truth as they see it. Um, but but what is the nature of the time we're in? It's the time where truth is no longer something we agree upon. It's no. the time of fake news. Yeah. It's the time of um alternative facts. Yeah. <laughs> so I think some. I think there is a. This is a a long winded windy answer, but I think there's no, something so about there's something about that that is affecting our communal shared experience of storytelling and, um, it, you know, f- theatre particularly is, I mean, obviously all all interfaces with, with art is subject to fashion, but theatre especially is subject to great tides of fashion, both in terms of actors and performers, but also writers, styles, subject matter, um, causes, um, debates and so forth and so on. But I think at the moment, more than at any other time in my lifetime, I'm 61, this is a time where it is almost impossible to find anyone in authority. There's almost no one anymore that we look to and go, well, at least they tell it like it you know, like it is. Um, you know it would be nice to have thought that Barack Obama was going to be that guy, but he was a, an American president. He did what American presidents do. And if you were living in, in a country uh, with the with the bad luck to have been droned or, you know, to have had your wedding blown up by a stray American missile or whatever, you know, mm. you, you you wouldn't have much good to say about Barack Obama's presidency if you were that guy or that woman. Mm. So, you, you know, what I mean, Harold Harold was I mean, Beckett, of course, had tremendous moral authority, not least because. He served in the French Resistance for a number of years during the during the war. Mm-hmm. He did saw things, experienced things at first hand, which changed him, changed the the writer he he became, and changed his entire outlook on life mm-hmm. and w- what was worth saying, what was what was just simply not worth saying. Um, obviously, Harold was premen- tremendously impressed by that. And developed his own sense but then if you bring it back to harold's lens and the one that and the the dwarfs as well um the lens that harold was looking at life through psychologically uh historically experientially you know a, a, a jewish lad um i mean in 1947 um well after the after the war all the fascists and and black shirts uh who were British born, British native, British fascists, were in, they were put in, in prison for the for the duration of the war. They mm-hmm. were interned. But as soon as the war was over, the government let those people out of prison. And guess what? They went straight back to the East End and started beating up Jews. So that was the atmosphere in, in Hackney and in the East End where, where Harold and Henry and his mates,
0: yeah. who,
1: most of whom were Jewish, they simply said, well, not on our watch, you know we may be 18 17 18 years old but we're not going to be intimidated by these thugs mm. so you know that was a, that was a big piece of harold's uh, adolescence was from time to time actually having street fights bottles chains um you know uh planks with nails in uh being chased or or standing and turning and fighting with these people so you know um you get what where, where i'm going with this, that that yeah. Harold's sensibility and his psychology were tremendously impacted by growing up during the war, mm. which meant being which meant, among other things, meant being um, evacuated as a, as a young child, which means separated from mummy and daddy. He was like nine. Mm. Yeah, How traumatic could that be? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then and then actually at times in London being bombed, his own garden set ablaze by an incendiary bomb. The lilac tree that he he played games. He was an only child, so that garden was his playground, was his universe. Yeah. And one night he looked out the window and it was on fire. Um, also during an air raid, I think you know um, he certainly told me that during an air raid he he had his first sexual experience with a with a girl from from up his street. So the, the you know the war <laughs> burns itself into Harold's experience: sex, death, uh, fire death falling from the sky uh dog fights between messerschmitts and spit for all this that's real we've only seen it on on you know the battle of britain movies but um yeah, no, yeah, but harold and henry that was the that was what they grew up in and um you know I- i'll finish this bit of my rambling with, with to remind you that um i mean yeah. i touch on it i touch on it so briefly in the film yeah. but harold, harold was a you know we still had um national service when harold became 18 so 1947 um he was called up as all 18 year olds were to do national service army navy air force two years um you, you didn't have a choice but harold stood up in court twice and stood trial for being a conscientious objector he mm. said i will not participate in this insanity mm. yes if that if, if you needed me to fight the nazis I'd have been there, but now with America and Russia pointing nuclear missiles at each other, uh, forget it. You're all nuts. I, I wash my hands of you. And-, oh. and Harold was prepared to go to prison for that, age seventeen.
0: Yeah.
1: All right, I'm going to shut up because I've been going on and on. But you, you yeah, see what, no. what, what I'm saying. Um, what I'm trying to 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 propose is that um, I can't remember what I'm trying to propose. Uh, but, but that. But this is this is where Harold's. A he was a born poet. He started writing poetry at the age of eleven or twelve, oh. off his own bat, you know, out of nowhere. How does that? How does that happen? Well, yeah. you know, sometimes people bring in into their lives tremendous impulses to be creative, to to paint, to write, to to do to do stuff. Sometimes it's it shows up as athletes, you know, amazing kids who who play football, you know, or cricket. Brilliantly. In Harold's case, mm. he fell in love with language and with words at a very early age. And so this marriage happens of psychology and sensibility and experience and history. And, you know, by the time he's he's 21 or so, he starts to write The Dwarfs as a novel because he wants to get down on paper. What was it like being around Hackney straight after the war? Mm. You know, We were all traumatized. We, we'd all grown up in this conflagration and and what did it do to us and who are we now and he tried to put that into into um into prose and it basically was it allowed him to start writing dialogue and of course he realized he could write dialogue yeah i get this image that that was a big not
0: only just for one one play in particular but i suppose a lot of his plays but i think would you say that the caretaker because is such a huge i know we talked about that last time but the the apartment that's leaking water you've got the bucket at the top of the ceiling that's leaking water the whole time you've got the whole place is trashed full of like you got a mattress overturned in the right hand corner you've got like wrappers and stuff in the in this corner on the left and everything and you've got uh mick who's trying to do everything like ice tea and <laughs> yeah, i don't know i don't know i just first thing that came into my head uh anyway <laughs> you mean news- in- you mean piles of newspaper that's what I meant. That's what I meant. Uh, news- <laughs> I like the idea <laughs> of rappers.
1: You know, Snoop Dogg in the corner of the caretakes. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, I meant like sweet rappers or something like I know, that. I know, I I'm, know. Yeah, I'm being sweet.
0: No, it's all good. Uh, but yeah, over there in the corner. And, you know, I just, when you were just saying all that, you know, I get this image of like, all all that went into, a lot of Mick, I think, is, is based off probably Harold's experiences after the war, trying to... Oh, yeah rebuild himself rebuild his home rebuild his livelihood and you know we again we mentioned the scene one of my favorite bits in Pinter is when he smashes the buddha at the end of act three and in the caretaker and just goes that's what i want just goes on this enormous just angry run of like and you know the first time you see just i think you know i can't ask the man sadly but i think it'd be nice to have asked harold was that Mick saying all that there is was that how you felt was that how you felt on a certain level maybe not You know he wasn't an interior designer or anything but was that what you were thinking about life after Mm -hmm. that was is that your way of saying this is the aftermath of what we of what
1: we went through well what, what what you're making me think of is that um we know that we know that um uh, uh harold ran away from rada he went to rada and ran basically he pretended to have a nervous breakdown after a term because he hated wow. he hated it so much wow um so he went to the principal's office and said oh I, I i'm having a breakdown i can't handle it and he sobbed and the principal said oh you poor chap but you better go home come back when you feel better <laughs> harold harold um basically spent the next six months telling his mum and dad he was still going to class at rada but basically bumming around london oh. bomb, you know, bombed out soho um meeting extraordinary people meeting wow. poets meeting uh american gis meeting prostitutes meeting meeting tramps meeting people who'd lost their completely lost their nut during the yeah. war yeah um, all these characters that that harold met are are packed into those first half a dozen plays or so, including Mick, including Aston, um, including Davies, including The Tramp, you know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, Harold would meet these people and he would talk to them and he would listen to them because he, Harold was a great listener. He was one yeah. of the great listeners. Um, he told off... Uh, Alan Aikborn tells this wonderful story about up in, in uh, Scarborough um, in 1958 or nine, they, they, they were rehearsing... Uh, the second ever production of The Birthday Party, because the oh. first production had been a terrible disaster yeah. and closed in London after a week. And um, Stephen Joseph, who'd started the theatre in Scarborough, said and, and had taught Harold at Central. After RADA, Harold went to Central and had a slightly yeah, better yeah. time. Yeah. But Stephen Joseph said, why don't you come? I'm starting this theatre in Scarborough. Why don't you come and direct the play yourself and show us how you think it should be done? And, and um, Alan Aitbourne played Stanley. Yeah. In that second production of The Birthday Party. Fantastic. Um, if I told this story on your previous podcast, please edit this out. <laughs> no, say it Anyway, say but, again. But, so Alan Akebourne wrote this beautiful... You can find it on the internet if you Google it, but Alan Akebourne wrote the story of how the actors decided... They were so baffled by The Birthday Party, by the script, yeah. that on the first day's rehearsal, they decided to take Harold to a pub and basically give him a, a pint of beer and pump him with questions. What the hell's going on in your play? You know, mm. Before they could start, this bloke, completely random bloke, runs into the pub and sits at their table right. and says, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I-, I need to tell someone what's just happened to me. And Harold says, well, you better tell us, tell us story. Yeah. the story. And basically, the guy has stuffed his mother-in-law up a chimney in his house because every time every week he gets his pay packet the, the mother-in-law tries to take the money off him and he's so furious with this happening week in week out he's lost his absolutely lost his marbles and he has stuffed his mother-in-law and she is now stuck in the chimney literally her legs dangling and he tells them this story <laughs> and uh when he's finished Harold says <laughs> when he's finished Harold says to him uh Well, look, I don't think you don't want to you don't want to hang for murdering your mother-in-law. You better go back and get her down. And the bloke goes, bloody hell, you're right. And he he legs legs it out of the pub, at which point there's a kind of long silence. And eventually somebody says to Harold, what an amazing bloke. And Harold goes, was he? In other words, Harold was completely familiar and comfortable with the most bizarre people coming up to him and telling them him the, the the extraordinary things that were happening in their lives. So I think when you when you meet an Aston or a Mick, you're you're meeting partly Harold's imagination, but you're also meeting fragments of real people. Yeah, that Harold would interact with on the street. There's a you as you know. There's a very good film of the caretaker. You can see it on YouTube. Yes early on in the film, there's a bit where the tramp is freezing and they shot it in Hackney. There's snow falling on the street and the tramp is kind of staggering down this road and he's stopping anyone who passes him by saying, you know, can you give me the price of a cup of tea? And mm. Harold is playing one of the passers-by. But you can't, you only see his back. So um, you, you can't see this Harold, but if you know his walk, you can tell it's Harold from from the way that he walks. But Harold met numberless quantities of these kinds of people and he wrote wow. about them. He, wow. he his imagination would go to work Yeah, like, you, like you, what you said about the um the first line of no man's land when harold hears a line in his head as it is he he can then trust his imagination to find take him to that person and listen into what what the guy is saying and then maybe form a, a visual idea of, of what the guy would look like, or maybe not. um But he had a remarkable imagination and many, many people, you know, much wiser than me have suggested that, that Harold's ability, you know, some people can remember all their dreams. Oh, I, yeah. I, I remember exactly what happened in my dreams. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. I don't even, I'm not even asleep in my dreams. I think Harold had a similar kind of ability oh. with the unconscious. He could, when, when when inspiration struck, he could tap into it in a very pure way and a kind of channel, a clear channel would sort of open up um and he could really just be in that other place where these characters are real and these people what they're saying is audible. Um, if he tried to going back to effort, you know, if he tried to make it happen, it wouldn't it wouldn't work. He, he yeah. went years where he was he was blocked and couldn't write and wanted to write but couldn't. So it wasn't up to him whether this tap was turned on or off. But when it was turned on, he had to pay attention and then he would run to his study and, and as he says in the film, begin to to write what, whatever would follow as it is. Um, mm. And then the, the image of whiskey being poured would come. It's a mm. wonderful, wonderful way of, of being able to write, you know. Yeah. Just, terrible. if yeah. If it deserts you, terrible. Oh, no,
0: write it down. Just write it down, I think. You know, even in this era, you know, because I, I actually at drama school, my final project was a one-man show, actually, which is based in a in a pub which I'm uh currently adapting and rewriting and stuff. And uh, you know, having worked in pubs, you know, I can imagine Harold had a very similar well, I had a similar experience to Harold is that you meet all these people that you just meet off the cuff. And sometimes they'll just tell you these stories and you're thinking, wow, this is incredible. I do have one story of my own, actually, if I may just quickly share it um before we jump into no man's land, but I remember there was this time I was working in the pub just up the road and uh it was a time where you know we just reopened after lockdown so more, not many people were allowed to stand at the bar this one guy came in he was just looking at the ciders and he reminded me he, he had a look of Davies actually I don't know why but he just I saw him he had a look of Davies especially the one in the in the film with um uh it was Robert Shaw isn't it who plays um Aston Aston, Aston yeah uh and he was looking, looking at all these bowls. And I, and I said, uh, so you you okay, man? I said, yeah, I'm just looking at the side just to, to see what you got. And he wasn't supposed to be there, but I thought, oh, just it's fine, just, just let him look. And then he and you hear this a lot in pubs. He just goes, Oh, I'll tell you what, the missus. she's driving me insane at the moment. And I was like, Oh, well, you know, it happens, doesn't it? And then there was a bit of a pause, and he just went, Yeah, but you know what I did. And I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> uh, no what did what did you do and very casually he just went like like that guy in the pub talking about his wife who stuffed up the chimney he just went yeah do you know what I did I said no what did you do so I just shagged his sister she was much nicer (laughs) oh
1: oh dear (laughs) But
0: I was like uh, uh, um yeah that 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 one's very good (laughs) (laughs) And it's those moments where you think, well, obviously, you know, I was, I'm i coming from a point where it's like, okay, i have never heard that before. But I can only imagine some of the stories that, I can't imagine what stories Harold must have heard where he's gone, what? Like, how did that happen? I mean, do you know any other stories that Harold heard, but you know that Harold was like,
1: what? How, where, where he was, even he was taken aback by it. Um, well, I'm going to struggle to to remember things uh Yes, but, no, no, no pressure if you can't think but, of one. But but you know, look at it's it's when you go to the plays and you see, um, you know, like Mister um, Kid in the Room, this this character who's who's deaf, um, mm. and um, the extraordinary character of um, Riley in that play, the, the the black man who arrives, the blind black man who's been hiding in the basement for a weekend, mm. um, you know. These are these are people. It, it, I believe that that Harold would have met and and had interactions with, and thought, you know, I'm putting them I'm putting them in a play, you know. But going back to something you said earlier about about um, people people judging Pinter as very con- a very controlled environment, and he, he he keeps everything kind of on a on a on an incredibly tight rein. But there's so much that, that what he wrote that's just based on him being deeply tickled by how insane life is
0: hmm.
1: because of the, because of these people that, that he met and interacted with. Yeah. It, it, the last play he wrote, celebrations, set in a, in a very posh West End restaurant, like the Ivy or somewhere like that, where they, there are these art, you know, kind of security consultants having their slap up West End nosh um, with their, you know, wives all tarted up and so on. This, this, these this terrible banker, Uh, another table and these bizarre very pretentious but hilarious waiting staff um (laughs) including the character that danny dyer played you know this young waiter who can't can't resist he keeps coming up to the table and says do you mind if i interject and then then everyone has to listen to the waiter you know (laughs) harold spent a lot of time in restaurants he loved restaurants yeah Um, he loved he loved the characters uh you know that, that life kept throwing in in his path and i think nine times out of ten these characters are are based on on actual real people that he met met. yeah um and you can you know you can you, you just get these vibrations from reading uh also reading his poetry the early poetry where where he's um you know kind of using language as a sort of um almost like hand grenades just kind of throwing language together and just detonating sounds and and stuff but in in there there are there are people and images that just tell you what what he was seeing and um how it was landing on him you know
0: yeah
1: i think he i think you know harold would never really try to be funny in his in his writing he just yeah. he just would write things down and you know life is life is funnier than art mm. the things that people say the things that people like like your guy just just there just oh you know i shagged his sister i mean it's it, 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 it it's it's a very simple thing, but it's in some way inappropriate in that moment. And yet it's life on life's terms, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's, it's just, as you said earlier, the beautiful yet the beauty and the madness of life is just, yeah. When you, we sort of read Harold's work, you know, you sort of appreciate life more and just, I would say less tends to, less tends to bother you after that. You just think, Oh, it's, (laughs) it's life, you know, just, have a glass of wine or a glass of champagne, have a nice meal, just chill. Just enjoy it. Just enjoy it. It's yourself. funny. Um
1: it's funny, Oliver. Uh, the, uh, an email just arrived. Uh, yeah. and it said um it was a Google thing and it said, No man's land in Chicago, as baffling as ever. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a, a Steppenwolf production just opened in, in Chicago. Oh, is there? Yeah. If only it was closer to here. To and it's see. as baffling as ever.
0: <laughs> as baffling as ever. Yes. I think that's the perfect lead on to No Man's Land. So thank you, Google, for that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we mentioned it earlier. Um, it's in the documentary that Harold gets out of a taxi one night and he hears in his head, as it is, which, of course, is the opening line of the play. And there's a... there's a. Uh, did you see Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart do it? It's, yeah, you did uh they did when they did the broadcast they did a and a afterwards with the director Sean Mathias and uh his version of things that what he heard was that someone phoned him up i can't remember who it was they said um said to Harold are you working on anything at the moment he said yeah I'm working on two blokes getting pissed in a house in Hampstead <laughs> that's it and um so we'll get into the, into the nitty-gritty of it in just a second but for anyone who's not familiar with the play it's about Spooner and Hurst uh do they know each other is the big question my feeling is that they do which i'll explain a bit later but it's a play about two blokes they go they end up back at this luxury hampstead house one night and they just they drink they talk about the past and there's something about hurst one minute he th- you think he's in the room and then the next minute he's not mentally if that makes sense um so and I think you gave an interview, Harry. About um, you said No Man's Land was like one of the first play. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was one of the first Pinter plays you saw, uh, and you saw it, um, and you were just completely blown away by the language and what was happening and everything. So, if we we'll start, if you cast your mind back to the first time you saw the play, what did you, what did you think about it, and what did it leave? What effect
1: did it leave on you for the first time? I must have seen it around the same time that I did that play at school along with the short and the tools so up, you know 16 17 uh-huh. <clears throat> so I was already kind of in a kind of moment of of awakening to theater to acting um i went i went with my uh, it was it was the original product was the first production uh-huh. I, i'm never quite sure whether it was I, I know I, I saw it at the National Theatre, but it had been at the Old Vic or went to the Old Vic afterwards. But um, yeah. I went with my dad and my grandmother as a I think it was my granny's birthday treat. Yeah. And I really, I, I had no idea what, I mean, I didn't know anything about, I'd never heard the name Harold Pinter. Um, I didn't know what was going on. But it, it is as powerful a memory as seeing Rylance playing Hamlet it, it just the experience of it has burned itself into my own imagination oh. um but I didn't understand anything about the play so I didn't have an intellectual response to it because I I didn't have an intellectual um framework to to relate it to so mm. what so what was I responding to I was responding to the atmosphere, the um, the presence of the actors, the quality of their presence. Mm-hmm. John Gilgood, Laure- um, not Lawrence, Livia, Ralph Richardson. Ralph Richardson, yeah. Um, and uh, Michael Kitchen and Terence Rigby. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's a bit like James Brown's band or, or the Whalers at, at their peak. You know, this was one of the great teams assembled on a stage, Uh for all time and um so i was in the room with a quality of acting and theatrical relish and and realization i think i think probably what really impacted on me was that theater could could have this quality of it was life reality magnified back at you it 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 wasn't naturalistic mm. it was theatrical obviously i wouldn't have understood the difference between those those two words yeah but, but you but you believed everything the room that it was taking place in the glass and the bottle that that that, that was pouring alcohol into the glass um I'd spent a lot of time around alcoholics at this time in my life, 15, 16, 17. My mum was a terrible alcoholic and the the, the house was filled with people who would just clunk bottles against glasses all night to the point where, you know. And so I I did recognise the truth, the reality. These people are doing what I see happening in my own house. They're Mm. drinking to the point where something's going to happen. Something bad's going to happen or something's going to kick off. Or people are going to start shouting or people are going to start, you know, I, I recognize that from from my world. Maybe it was the first time I'd seen something that I knew from my own world really mirrored back to me, magnified back to me with such compelling presence and Obviously, it was it, it was funny, but I didn't really know why it was funny. But then suddenly they would they'd be swearing. Suddenly, you know, I'm not a cunt, you know, or or um, I, I, what is it? What's the line about? You know, um, uh, the breakfast. Be- oh yeah, it's like there's
0: champagne. He's like champagne. It's like be sociable, mingle. It's like you can't drink champagne. It's not even lunchtime. It's like, the best time to drink champagne is before lunch. You can't. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, unbelievable. I know. I- I was like, what, "What? He's allowed to say that? Fuck!" Yeah. It, it was just so electrifying and compelling, and very, very funny. And so that the atmosphere of um, these people, these strange elderly men, behaving in this kind of dissolute and and, and yet using language in this high flown way, the the the, the 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 clashing of. Um, apparently grandiose and also, you know, I mean, the state of John Gielgud's costume and his, his suit was spattered with saliva and, you know, yesterday's curry and it looked like he yeah. hadn't been to bed for a week. And, uh, you know, the, 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 these, these contradictions, <laughs> um, the, the menace of the, of the, the, the servants, Michael Kitchen having this huge kind of medallion and being a bit kind of camp, oh. um, at the same time talking about shagging his way around the Far East. Um, and um Terence Rigby basically being a kind of eloquent thug uh who, who looked like he could, you know, crush John Gilgood in the palm of his hand, and at one yeah. point, you know, really threatened to do so. Yeah. He had to be he had to be restrained by Foster. Um, yeah. so all these elements in the same wondrous kind of set of this carpeted room where you couldn't hear people's footfall because the carpet was so thick and the yeah. armchair was looked so deep and then this bar with, with with a thousand bottles backlit with with the color of liquor coming through them honestly it just blew me yeah away. and it's, um yeah. I, i've never i've never forgotten it and but but lest we forget you must tell your, your viewers and your listeners that yeah. they can watch this very production on yes, YouTube because exactly. Granada Television filmed it in probably 1977. Yeah. So you don't need to take my word for it. Go yeah. and watch Gilgood and Richardson and, and Terry Rigby and Michael Kitchen. It's there for eternity.
0: Yeah, and I'd repeat that. You know, watch it. It's available on YouTube. Please check it out, guys. It's one of the best... Pieces of acting best pieces of writing best pieces off of... the
1: charts it's
0: just brilliant <laughs> and you know it reminds me of something we were talking about earlier um about you know trusting yourself and really just being grounded and you know knowing that you can do it and everything is is good again there's a, another brilliant moment in the documentary this is a story from harold himself where he said he just happened to be backstage one night at that production and he was in the wings and he heard Ralph Richardson and John Gilgart just chatting. Literally, they're about 30 seconds about making their first entrance. And one of them turns to the other and goes, What do you have for lunch today? That's oh, I went to the Savoy Grill. Oh, did you have what did you have? Oh, I had the lovely, lovely chicken thing. It was, it was lovely. There's a glass of wine. Yes, lovely, uh, lovely canteen, lovely, lovely wine. lovely wine. And the stage manager just goes, Okay, and you're on. And they went on and he went, as it is?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, if that's not confidence in yourself and trust in yourself, yeah. I don't know what is.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you're not wrong. They were, they were, I saw Gilgud maybe once or twice. I think it was the only time I saw Ralph Richardson. I don't think I ever saw Laurence Olivier in the theatre. But they but they were, and of course, there were some wonderful actresses around that time Peggy Ashcroft, Edith Evans, Sybil Thorndike, many, 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 many wonderful, wonderful actors. But, But these people, I mean, my mum, you know, w- was like any other teenager interested in acting. Would queue in 1946 around the block to stand in the in the gods um, at uh, what what is now the probably the Noel Coward or one of those theatres on on St Martin's Lane to see Laurence Olivier and and uh, to see these actors. They yeah. they were the great they were the great actors and. Um, you know, then the 60s happened uh and they lost their crowns as it were because the this great new wave of um new style came through but then mm. for them to be back on stage in their 80s and their late 70s and, and 80s still saying you know this is this is what what i stand for this, this is and they were very i i i greatly lament the the i i mentioned you know the 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 disappearance of authority but these people had authority in fact harold tells that story in the in the film you know that it does yeah john Gielgud said you know um there's only one actor who has more authority than i have on the stage and that is ralph richardson <laughs> um, it's outrageous and very uh, funny, but it's also true oh yeah oh yeah and there are people who who were very rude about that style of acting mm. um, because every generation throws up its it's critics and it's it's contradictory forces and but you only have to watch the film of No Man's Land or Laurence Olivier in the Entertainer or mm. Laurence Olivier in the collect Harold Pinter's The Collection also on YouTube to see that these that the the quality of the presence of these these actors uh, was something that w- the like of which we we don't really see today very 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 rarely mm. I, you know we could talk about what why that is all day and I, I've already mentioned that I think Harold's character was formed under the enormous pressure of living through wartime, well, some of these actors were talking about, not John Gielgud, but some of these actors, you know, Ralph Richardson served in the war mm. you know, they saw action. They, they, they they went to war. Now, if there's, if there's something that's going to give an actor, male or female, a quality of having lived a life, you know, um, look at some of the American movie acts, Spencer Tracy and people like that. They, they had this quality of presence mm. because of what they'd seen and, Lived and breathed in their lives, oh. um, and rather like our politicians these days, who many mm-hmm. of who have known know nothing except politics. Whereas we used to get people who who come into politics having given their lives in service to something else um, and made a difference, and then brought that experience to bear on politics. You know, um, a lot of uh, a lot of acting these days is done by people who know know nothing except show business.
0: Mm. Tragically so. Tragically so.
1: Well, I don't know if it's true I, I don't know what, what I'm trying to say, really, except that, of course, you know, um, going back to w- what Harold and Henry were talking about, acting to, to be uh, to involve looking deep within yourself. Mm. Everybody has pain. Everybody has grief. Everybody has um, trauma to some extent or other. But but are you willing as an actor to go there? Mm. Are you willing to disassemble your defences enough? Get yourself out of the way so that. Um, and uh, so you know th- there are mysteries. There are mysteries about acting and why, yeah. why some actors can generate that kind of presence. But yeah. uh, those two, those two were were quite quite something else, unforgettable. Mm. And it's Harold funny. loved. Can you imagine what it was like for Harold to work oh. with? Him? these people i mean you know i've seen uh, uh postcards between harold and, and ralph richardson and ralph richardson loved harold and you know told him you know said you're terrific you know but uh, i think you're doing great things and for harold this was like un, unbel- the you know blessings yeah. blessings yeah. falling from yeah. from the, the, the mouths of gods yeah i mean
0: it's just you know for someone of that quality to sort of say that you're on the right lines here is just incredible and I think with those two in particular, they really captured, you know, just the, the relationship, if any, between those two characters. I mean, I mean, obviously there is a relationship between the two of them, but how far back does that relationship go? So I said before that my there's there's a big debate whether these two characters know each other, Spooner or Hearst. So I'm going to throw this out there. My opinion is that they do. And i and I subscribed to this theory put forward by Ian McKellen, actually that this play is an exploration of um, of dementia and Alzheimer's. And I think Hurst is, for one of a better phrase, again, this is just my opinion, is sort of losing his marbles and he, he doesn't know where he is. Um, you know, he's recounting stories in act two. It's like I might show you, like at the beginning, he goes, Charles, oh, I remember our Oxford days. And then very slowly, you see him slip away. And then he has that line, this is outrageous. But who are you? <laughs> what, what, what what are you doing in my house? And then he goes to summon Denson and then instead of and the first time I saw the play, I thought he was going to go kick this man out. But then he goes, "I'll have a whiskey and soda," and then he just comes back <laughs> into the room. and And I think it's a very and I'm sure Harold must have met you know men in you know in later life who sadly did go through that experience. You know, I'm pretty sure. But um, but my opinion is that they did know each other. And then there was a relationship and Spooner does have a wife that was <laughs> wooed by Hearst in the Oxford days and everything. I
1: that, that that's my opinion of it. What's what's yours, Harry? <laughs> um, well, that's quite a bold thing to assert about the dementia, and it makes me want to go back again to um a kind yeah. of Alaska. Yeah. Well, it's just uh, a
0: theory I have. isn't it? I'm not saying it's the thing. but you no, know.
1: no. I mean, look, I think, yeah, you know. these are legitimate areas of inquiry. Um, but if you go back to a kind of Alaska, which is a play based on the work of Oliver Sacks, it was a, um, uh, a doctor, a scientist who worked with patients who suffered from a thing called sleeping sickness. Mm. And he developed, um, he developed uh, a drug that allowed these people who'd been, Essentially, in a coma for thirty years, it, this drug allowed them to come back to conscious life briefly, okay. briefly mm. before they slipped back forever into their com- coma state. Oh God! Um, so this was the only play that I think Harold ever based on somebody else's uh, research and memoir, Oliver Sacks, and Harold and Oliver Sacks were were in touch about it at the time. But there's a there's a This is the play that I I mentioned before that begins with a woman waking up in a hospital bed saying something is happening. Yeah. Now, at no point is it really explained what's happening, but there is a moment where a doctor very succinctly explains that he has given her a drug that has allowed her to come out of her coma state, um, and that what she's experiencing is waking up from a 30-year sleep. In other words, when Harold wants us to understand the context of, let's say, a medical condition, mm. he makes no mystery of it. He puts it right there in the script, which is why I would state in response to you, if he, if Harold is, is consciously writing about dementia, the, the condition of dementia, why mm. doesn't he tell us that? Because he's not interested in fucking with the audience for the sake of it. Yeah, that's right. He doesn't want to create create mysteries that um, on top of mysteries. It's a mystery enough just being alive and walking to your fridge, and finding that the milk's gone sour. Hmm. But then, for a playwright or a poet or a writer to befuddle an audience by by telling by adding more things that the audience can't explain, can't find a reason for that's going to mess with the audience's comprehension of what's happening and harold's not interested in that mm. he's interested in the in in the audience knowing just enough because he's never going to explain anything because okay. he doesn't he doesn't see why he should he doesn't he doesn't feel any obligation mm. to the audience to explain anything but something as vital as this man hurst is suffering from um Early onset dementia, or or Alzheimer's, or some kind of you know um, incapacity of the brain from old age, brought on by old age. If Harold if Harold was really writing about that specifically, he would have found a way to tell us. That's my that would be my counter assertion.
0: Okay.
1: That uh, and I repeat because Harold doesn't want to mess with the audience for the sake of being powerful. Mm-hmm. He wants the audience to go away. And make up their own make their own understanding of it. Hence, all the conversations you hear at the end of a production of the Dumb Waiter, where the audience leaves saying, "Oh, ah, he didn't kill him. They've they, they've legged it together." Um, or, "Oh, of course he's killed." Well, no, the other one's pulled out his gun and shot the bloke with the gun. People have their people have their own amazing responses because Harold pays them the compliment of saying, "It's yours. You figure it out." Hmm. Now. Does Harold know what Harold thinks? Of course he fucking does. Does, <laughs> does, Harold, does Harold think that Ben shoots Gus? Yes, he does. Mm. Harold thinks Ben shoots Gus. It's not a mystery. But he doesn't explain. So that's my response to, to the dementia thing. Um, the the evidence before our eyes in no man's land is of alcoholism. Mm the very fact that the the set itself is is composed around an enormous almost almost stonehenge like bar packed with every conceivable liquor that that anyone could could wish for and the fact that these guys are already pissed at the beginning of the play yeah. <laughs> and then carry on now you know uh we've all we've probably all done that a bit um, and we all know how unwise it is and we've all seen people pass out fall over knock themselves out that's what happens to Hearst he 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 passes out he does he crawls around he, he, he tries to get up he passes out so for me if you want if you want to find an underpinning medical situation it's the one that's right in front of our faces it's alcoholism mm. uh, now then if you've ever been around real alcoholics, the fact that someone can walk into a room and say, Oliver, my dear chap, how are you? When half an hour before they they threw up in their own shoes um, and had to be put in a cold bath, that's that's alcoholism. Um, Extreme and chronic and horrifying as Mm. it is. So I'm not saying it's a play about alcoholism, but I am saying that I think Hurst is, is uh, in the in the latter stages of uh, addiction to alcohol. I do believe that. Yeah. Um, perhaps his tragedy is that these two men who look after him are actually, instead of getting him to treatment or taking him to an AA meeting, um, they are actually, to some extent, facilitating it. Although they at times they try and say to him, you've had enough. But then he cajoles them and persuades them and woos them to to enable him again so again with alcoholics uh really chronic alcoholics often have people around them who actually enable the addiction mm.
0: now, yes. yeah
1: you know we could talk about that all day and Harold knew a lot about about alcoholism because well he probably was he probably was one
0: yeah in yeah. fact
1: uh, in fact he gave up alcohol at the end of his life. I haven't had a drink for twenty six or seven years, and he came to me. Harold came to me and said, "You've got to help me. I've I've got to stop drinking, or I'm, or, I'm, or my liver's going to pack up." Oh. Um, and, I, and I went. I used to go to AA a lot, so um, I said, "Harold, I'll do anything I can." And he said, "But I'm not going to those fucking meetings of yours." <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and I said, How, uh, who the, "Who's saying you should go to to a AA meeting?" He said, "Well, I'm not. Just just remember that I'm not doing that." But you've got to help me. Got to um, help me to get the alcohol out of the house. <laughs> yeah. Well, he went. You know, he went cold turkey. Uh, oh,
0: yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know yeah, that.
1: he 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 had a very. He died of liver failure. He died of he died an alcoholic's death.
0: Yeah, I think um, you mentioned last time that he didn't he drink spirits until he was like. Forty or fifty or something.
1: About but. fifty. A doctor said to him, "If if you carry on with the with the whiskey, you're gonna you're gonna um kill yourself." He did get cancer of the esophagus, which may may or may not have had something to do with um you know a lot of um mm. liquor hard liquor being being poured down there. He had a he had an amazing capacity for booze. He mm. could drink drink a lot of people under the table, but um um he was also very very stubborn um and he didn't but you know this is addiction basically yeah Harold's Har- no no different better or worse than any other person who has the misfortune to to find themselves addicted to alcohol. It's a yeah. very very difficult situation
0: yeah and it's, it's and also I think that ties into the last bit at the end I think it's it's mentioned twice this brilliant poetic little passage which um slight spoiler. In fact, big have it. It's, it's one of the final lines of the play, um, but it's mentioned in the first act as well as, as well as the second. Ugh, I'm not going to get it right, but I'm going to try my best. Um, no, you are no man's land where nothing moves. Nothing. I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to get this right. I'm paraphrasing at this point. Uh, but nothing moves. Nothing. You've probably got a copy there, Harry. Actually. Well, it
1: won't take me long to find it. It's a I, great speech.
0: Yeah. It's yeah, you i will let you read it. Let's do it the way it's intended. <laughs> is that funny enough in the documentary, Harold said, I hate it when people change the words. No, the words are there for a reason, and those are the words you will say So, <laughs> so let's honor Harold's spirit by
1: saying saying the real well, thing Hurst says, um because that last speech is in is in response mm. and Hurst says, um but I hear the sounds of birds. Don't you hear them? Sounds I never heard before. I hear them as they must have sounded then when I was young, although I never heard them then, although they sounded about us then. Yes, it is true. I am walking towards a lake. Someone is following me through the trees. I lose him easily. I see a body in the water floating. I am excited. I look closer and see I was mistaken. There is nothing in the water. I say to myself, I saw a body drowning, but I am mistaken, there is nothing there. And then Spooner says, no, you are in no man's land, which never moves, which never changes, which never grows older, but which remains forever icy and silent. And Hurst says, I'll drink to that. I'll drink to that. <laughs> I mean, the last line of the play is "I'll drink to that." Mm. Well, drink to what? Drink to oblivion. Drink to to death. Drink, drink into the icy, frozen lake of of eternity. It's yeah. not. It's not a positive, happy ending.
0: Yeah, and it it's, makes it makes me ask now: How did? Well, first of all, how did Spooner? Uh, no, not Hearst, how did he get to that point? What made him turn to the booze? And also, secondly, what happens next?
1: And you're going to have to wait because the front doorbell just went and I've got to go and answer the door. Okay. To have to press pause. I'll press pause. I'll press pause. Oh.
0: Okay, we're back. Okay, say that again, Harry. What just happened?
1: <laughs> it couldn't It couldn't have been more more esque It, it, it was an ancient 100-year-old man almost with the face of a mummy about six foot two on my doorstep, collecting for meningitis. And he, he said, have you got a couple of coins? Just a, a couple of coins. <laughs> I was like, I'm in the middle of, 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 of um, it. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid so, uh, anyway, there you go. Almost as if almost as if sent from um, somewhere else to uh, yeah. to, tit- to titillate our, our imaginations. Where were we?
0: and anyway, uh, forever icy and silent. So what made so Hurst? How did he get there? And what happens next? You know, all these questions. Mm. And I was, I mean, you. I was going to ask, what is no man's land to you? And you just said it there. You know, it's oblivion. It's death. It's coldness. It's dark. It's it's lonely. It's it's isolating. You know, it's yes. how does one get to that stage? And yet the alcohol as you know as many medicals have said it's a sort it's of like a numbing agent it's a coping mechanism for a lot of people and I think mm. how how do you think what what has Hurst what who is Hurst what's happened in his life do you think from your own imagination for us to get to that point do you think
1: well uh, I think you know looking at surfaces he's done very well mm. he's sold a lot of books
0: yeah, he's an intelligent guy as well.
1: Uh, highly intelligent, highly refined. I mean, Ralph Richardson comes in in this gorgeous suit with a beautiful handkerchief spilling out. You know, he, he looks he looks a million dollars when he comes in in Act 2 saying, Charles! Mm. Um, you know, uh, so I think we uh, also, no one lives in Hampstead unless they've done pretty well, <laughs> so, especially with a house backing onto the heath, you know. Um And so I think, you know, we're we're, we're certainly entitled to say that this is someone who's done very, very well. He's got two butlers, not one, but two butlers, Mm. um, fixers who take care of everything. And um, something has gone horribly wrong, you could argue. Mm. There is no, there are no women. There's nothing tender there's no there's nothing um
0: there's no children either
1: there's no children there's no no mention of well there's there's you know those kind of reveries of of the past mention yeah mention lovers and infidelities and so forth but yeah essentially i think we're 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 looking at an image of somebody who has everything that that on the outside everything that a person could want but who is um, has been hollowed out on the inside Mm. through well then then you then you get into the whole question of what but you know what drives what drives addiction what drives um and we could talk about that for 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 a year but um certainly Spooner responds to Hurst in, in a in a in a spirit of compassion or so Spooner would like us to believe you know mm. let me let me be your secretary let me work for you i could take care of your papers i could take care of your your diary uh, i could keep hangers on at bay i could you know what i mean spooner who clearly is, you know is is not um exactly at the top of uh, whatever pro- professional tree he sits in mm. uh, uh he doesn't exactly dispute the assertion that he's a piss pot collector, um, <laughs> you know, in a, in a, in a chalk farm pub. Yeah. The, um, land, the landlord is a friend of mine. <laughs> <The friend's laughs> friend of mine. I mean, <laughs> it, it's interesting to remember that Harold, you know, did a lot of poetry readings in rooms above those pubs um, in, in the seventies, sixties and seventies. He, there you know, you he, Harold, Harold was absolutely in love with the kind of romantic, almost mythical world of, you know the poets, um, and and the the the, the tradition of re- poetry readings, people who who were committed to writing poetry. I mean, this is not a secret, but because he he was so generous and supportive of, of many many other poets, especially you know in other parts of the world. But um, there, you know, um, Harold Hero worshipped poets, Dylan mm. Thomas. Um, he went around the the, the 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 all day drinking clubs in Soho, places like Muriel's, these these mythical places where where people just you know in in basements in Soho, and he would go up to the, to these. Um, there was particularly what a famous Scottish poet called W. S. Graham, who Harold Hero worshipped. And mm. he found him, you know, at the age of 18, Harold had memorized this guy's face and went into one of these bars and, and there was W.S. Graham. And, and Harold went up to him and said, uh, I just want to tell you how much I admire your poetry. And W.S. Graham said, why don't you piss off? Um, <laughs> you know, so Harold's writing, when, when he's writing about, about Spooner and the world of Chalk Farm and poetry readings and Rooms Above Pubs and Landlords, um, Harold knows what he's talking about because he was part of that world. Mm. He loved that world and um you know discussions of poetry and a a room a room full of writers sharing their imaginations to harold that was a a, a great brotherhood to to be part of um he he gave a lot of money to to people in fact he gave a lot of money to ws graham because Mm. ws graham ended up living in cornwall Mm. um, penniless and harold rescued that that guy from obscurity, he would send him a check almost every month for a thousand pounds, so yeah. that so that uh, W. S. Graham could go on writing poetry and come to London and do do recitals. Mm. So you know that that's not Harold imagining something. It's some it's Harold reporting from the front about what it's like to be around those people. Spooner mm. is is a kind of um, probably a, 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 an amalgam of various real people that Harold would have met. Um so I don't know where I'm where I'm going with that, except that um like like a lot of things in, in Pinter's plays, there is a a a, a basis in, in reality, a lived reality that he that, that his imagination then runs riot with.
0: Mm. It's it's incredible. It's incredible. And uh I I just try to think what else what else is there about this play? Because there's so there's so much. There's, you know, the fact it's set in, you know, Hampstead Heath and there's commentary of what, what that means, you know, and, you know, what's that? Why Hampstead Heath? Why specifically that location and everything? <laughs> oh, Did you have a theory on that?
1: Well, it's very near Chalk Farm. Um, yeah. It, it, you know, uh, a lot of literary people live in Hampstead. Yeah. stuff stuff goes on on Hampstead Heath um that some of those literary people might uh, enjoy and participate in it's just it you know um there's no there's no you can't solve the mystery of it mm. um most academics go go in for these quite abstracted analyses of of these plays Mm. um and nine times out of ten they miss they miss the point a lot of the time harold is just having the time of his life he's loving it writing Mm -hmm. down the next crazy thing that comes into his head (laughs) i mean that, that's oversimplifying, but it, and yet it but but that's I mean Henry, Henry told me when 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 they were writing the when Harold was writing the birthday party, mm. you know and that fantastic interrogation scene when Stanley is being bombarded by by McCann and Goldberg with with this relentless barrage mm. who you know and, and the, the the amazing hilarious um combinations of religion, cricket, uh catering, um you know a terrible jokes like um uh no society would touch you not even a building society i mean that's a terrible terrible joke but it gets it finds its way in there
0: yeah
1: in amongst things like who watered the wicket at melbourne (laughs) um you verminate the sheet of your birth Uh, you abominate womankind you know, and Henry told me that ha- he and Harold were just ro- rolling around the floor laughing yeah. and, and Henry would go, oh, I've got one, you know, um, yeah. the blessed Oliver Plunkett. And they would just fall about <laughs> laughing. And, and Harold would be like, right, that's going in, that's going in, that's going in. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. the, 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 the anarchic spirit. I mean, something that, that, that just sprung into my mind is Harold and Peter Cook were good mates. And mm. Peter Cook was the spirit of 60s anarchy, anti-establishment, um, you know, ripping the piss out of out of people like Harold Macmillan and whatnot. They just were having a laugh at mm-hmm. the expense of people's expectations of what a playwright should be. And, you know, the critics expectations of yeah. you know um, the sort of thing that, that is befitting the West End stage they they just thought, fuck all that to to, to hell. <laughs> just, to, you know, we'll write what we fucking well want. Thank yes. you
0: so much. Adam, thank really. God he did. <laughs> you won't,
1: you will not do, I mean, Harold's great thing is you will not define me. I will mm-hmm. not be defined as the absurdist, the, Jew, the Jewish playwright. All through the 60s, the Daily Mail called Harold the Jewish playwright. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it wound him up, I don't doubt. But, yeah. you know, he was basically just doing that to, to anybody who said, "Oh, I know what you are. I know what you are. You're da 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 da." I mean, there was the famous story about the the, the bloke who said to him um, in a in a pub, um, "You know, the trouble with Hitler was he didn't go far enough." And Harold Harold's at the bar. And Harold turns sideways and says, "Say that again." And the bloke says, "I said the trouble with Hitler was he didn't yeah. go far enough." And Harold absolutely thumps him. Oh. And, and you know um wow. they end up in a, in a in a, a police station <laughs> and outside they they both get released on a caution and outside the bloke says um he says uh, oh you're, you're probably one of those jewish chaps yourself and Harold said, yeah i am actually yeah. and he said well, i can un- i can understand why you hit me but why did you have to hit me so hard <laughs> what, you know but, what? But again, <laughs> okay.
0: You know, okay that, that oh, story God.
1: that story takes place in a pub so you know yeah. there's there's that's drink a, yeah the, taking.
0: yeah i'm i'm stealing that story by the way <laughs> that's,
1: that's, it's that's in good. it's in billington listen it, it, you know people who want to know more about all this you know the the must read book is michael billington's biography it's yeah. a it's a wonderful wonderful yeah. book it's an
0: epic as well it, it's huge isn't it it is huge but yeah. but
1: you know it's based on long lucid unboundaried conversations between Harold and, and Michael. And as such, yeah, it's not very, it's not particularly critical, mm. um, but it, it's full of life and uh, it's full of Harold's spirit and
0: his, yeah. his essence. I need to read it. I
1: definitely need to read it. But then just, just, just to finish the whole thing about, you know, um, Celebration set in a, a restaurant where everyone's on the piss. No Man's Land, a mid-period play set in the house of an alcoholic poet Mm. the dwarfs written in 1949 um they're all on the piss the whole time Mm. so this you know there is a thread of um alcohol runs all the way through harold's story all the way through harold's literary life wow Um, and that's just how it is they i mean one could almost say because it's almost entirely true that basically in back in back in those days everyone drank like that everyone in the theater everyone you know all actors and so forth yeah Peter Bowles told me a wonderful short story once about being in, in the famous actors pub called the Salisbury which is on St Martin's Lane and he was exactly. at the bar um probably about 1960. he was at the bar and this good-looking bloke came came and stood next to him and Peter Bowles turned to him and said uh, I've just seen this fantastic play at the Arts Theatre called The Caretaker and this other bloke said yeah I'm the cunt who wrote it <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh my god that was fantastic well Harry I could talk to you all day about this I would I'd love this conversation to keep going but time will prevent us from doing so it's, thank you so much for coming back man I've absolutely loved it and there's a spot on you for you again in the future i still need to see more plays uh we were talking about the the homecoming i think before we came on and that's on at the young vic Lakes this year i'll try and get get to that and then we'll get you back for another episode to talk about that and even more stuff or crazy things that have happened in harold's harold's life which i'm sure there's so much there le-
1: left to say be, that would be great I, i'm looking forward to it matthew dunster's a terrific director and um i'm sure it'll be good listen um let me say one last thing yeah. uh Hang on just one second. Yeah, of course. So,
0: um, yeah, just got just got two more questions for you, man, and then uh, then we can sort of finish up. Something's,
1: something, something, uh, something happened at my end. So this is the cover of my. Uh, obviously, it's in, it's back back to front, but that's the mm-hmm. DVD cover of my my documentary working with Pinter. But the people who sell it, um, people who published it, the company have decided to, that they don't want to sell DVDs anymore. Consequently. Yeah. They've sent me uh, a stack of DVDs, Mm -hmm. which um, have got not only the documentary on it, but also long a long um, interview with Harold that I did, that most of which wasn't in the film. Um, I've now got hundreds of these. So Mm. if any of your if any of your viewers, I mean, I'm going to I'll I'll sell them for a fiver. So if any of your viewers would like a copy of my documentary. you know they they can again just write to you and you can forward me whatever and people can can have have a copy yeah. of, the, of the film for a fiver
0: yeah i would i would love one i would love one man I I'll, so I'll, I'll.
1: you can have one for nothing because you're a, you're a mate <laughs> anyway th- those i've got like 300 of these discs well, and, there you uh, go I, guys, never guys get buying get buying now it's a
0: beautiful documentary i need to watch this interview as well i haven't seen that yet but definitely for sure um so yeah just r- write to me send me a message um I mean, it's, right, it's okay if I put your details below, Harry. But your website, your your YouTube channel, yeah, and everything, yeah. so people can contact yeah, not, you. There.
1: not my not my email address, but I expect people can write to me anyway. Um, care of YouTube or yeah, no, no, please yeah. do put my YouTube channel because, um, some of those interviews with uh, Penny Wilton and people are, are, you know, full of really good stuff.
0: Yeah, we'll do. So just just two more questions for you, Harry. Just before we finish up, uh, it was one quick fire one, which is um. Do you think of, of all the times, all the time that you knew, Harold, was there ever a moment in rehearsal? And again, in the documentary, there's some beautiful rehearsal footage of the two of you with a group of actors. Was there ever a time where Harold sort of let you in on a little secret that about what the play was actually about? You know, you could he could hear all the actors talking like, oh, no, it's about this. Oh, like, no, 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 it can't be about that. It's about this. And was there ever a time where you just went up to him and said, Harold, could you what what is this play about? And there's been that one time he's just whispered in your ear, this is what it's about.
1: <laughs> well he was he he you know Harold loved actors, absolutely loved loved actors. Um so if there was something that he if there was something that that was really important to understand about a play he he would share that with everybody hmm. um i know i i certainly know people who um who would write to him and say your play has absolutely exposed something that is really um important to me and important to the world and I, I you know harold would say that's it you know he would reply and say that's it that's it you've got it Mm. And it it meant a lot to him that people did kind of basically stop analyzing the shit out of things and just trust their, trust their gut. Mm. Um, It it meant a lot to him that that people really got what he was trying to, trying to do. Mm. But I have to say, Ollie, that that, that actually, because he understood actors so well, really, I mean, the time that I worked with him on, on creating the, the role of Jimmy in Party Time, which is a very strange part. I don't know whether you know people have seen it um again there's a video of that on my youtube if you if people want to watch that i can share the share the uh, the, the private link but um mm-hmm. you know creating a new part that harold had just written basically you know I, I i said i was 28 29 i said to harold i have no idea how to do this you've written something I've i've never done anything comparable to it i have no there's nothing in my experience this character seems to be either dead or dying or a ghost or being tortured to death um um, i can't i can't really bring any experience personally to this Mm. and harold said i don't know how to do it either we're going to have to figure it out together but we will we'll work it out together Mm. and he was so loyal to that it was he was so true he you know, it was a, a, a bizarre challenge. My character came on at the end of the play on his own, spoke straight to the audience after half an hour of almost knockabout comedy by by this glorious kind of troupe of, of actors who were just doing these little kind of sketches about these awful kind of ruling class people, mm. quite like the Tories now. Um, anyway, I'm just, what I'm saying is that it, it was it was much more with Harold, this, the sense of, that he would walk with you through the the thing that you would that you had to do mm. and um you know give you lots of encouragement it's it's basically where i learned how to be a director was was by you know observing harold's patience and his loyalty and his total commitment he will get you where you need to go he doesn't know how he doesn't know how we're going to do it but he but there's there's that great trust in the process or the creative process, but also the process of rehearsal. That you know, on day one, you have no idea how you're going to feel on day 21. No, and you, you look back and you go, "How is that even possible yeah. that we've arrived here <laughs> when, when we were we were absolutely pig ignorant yeah. and clueless?" And and yet, and Harold would say, "In in my own way, I'm as, I'm as ignorant as you are." But he would give you what clues he could. But he wasn't one for going he wasn't one for going you know kind of between you and me you know <laughs> the butler did it he wasn't he wasn't he wasn't that guy because if, if if it was important for you to know that then it was important for everyone to know that okay um so i, I don't know what that doesn't answer your question but it you know No, it, it, does. it, it really does it truly does in that sense you know i was i've been i've been lamenting the absence of authority in our profession in our industry but Harold was a King, you know, he was a King Yeah. in the That's same cool. way that, that Gielgud and Richardson and Olivier were Kings. Yeah. Um, his royalty, his royalty, he, but, but he took, he took that, that leadership role very, very seriously. Mm. And, and his belief in you was total. Mm. His commitment and belief in you would get you there, would get you over the line. And, great patience too you know you know actors need to get it wrong a lot before they start finding the goal and that's that's given I don't know any good actor who who doesn't have to flounder in their own you know misery before hitting hitting the jackpot you have to go through that Harold yeah. knew that he understood that so yeah. you, you always felt you had this this caring concerned arm around your shoulder walking with you and that's what I've tried to um take on as a director myself and you know, hopefully model for other other people because actors are wonderful, wonderful people and they, you know, they do something pretty hair-raising and, um, you know, they, they they need a lot of love and support to get there and then they can fly and, and then the director can say, you've done it, you've got it, it's yours and yeah. walk away.
0: Exactly. Fantastic. And just and one final question for you, Harry, today before we just finish is... I'm sure there's probably many, many stories that could possibly answer this question, but if you could find, if there's one that really stuck with you, then please do tell me every detail. And that question, and that question is, what's been an experience in your career or experiences you've had in your career that you'll never, ever forget?
1: Well, in or out of, of Pinterland?
0: It, either or. Could be in Pinterland, could be out of Pinterland. Any, any um, experience or more than one time that you've had that you'll always, always remember?
1: Well, um, believe it or not, I I uh, played um, Professor Higgins um, about 70 times at the Theatre or Drury Lane <laughs> and, um, in Trevor Nunn's wonderful production. I was <clears throat> what's called walking cover, which is not the understudy. There is an understudy in the cast, but I was... I was prepared, rehearsed, and ready. If the if Alex Jennings or Anthony Andrews wanted needed a holiday, or as as happened, Anthony Andrews got very sick, and I had to take over. And um, it's the you know Higgins is is the the best part ever written for a man in a musical.
0: Hmm.
1: The dialogue is by Bernard Shaw, and there are, it has like five or six numbers. And you know, I am a musical theatre person. I, I I've done a lot of that over the years, and um, but also it was one of those magical things where the the character Higgins is questionable character. You know, the the the, the overbearing teacher, the um, the the, the, the Pygmalion part of him that wants to have a relationship with a perfect female that he wants to shape and mold and and make to his design. You know, there's bits of that in me as a man. Hmm. And um, so it was one of those magical things that, you know, it was a, a part that I found I could play pretty, not easily, but it was a good fit. Mm-hmm. I mean, Alex Jennings was off the charts good. He was wonderful. But when I played Higgins, the audience didn't mind that Alex wasn't on. <laughs> they, they let me know. And the, and the orchestra let me know too, because I, I would do it about 15 minutes quicker than Alex. And that meant the, the band could get to the pub sooner. So they would, uh, when I took my curtain call, the, the, the band were always like, all right, Harry, because... Uh, <laughs> Let's go get drunk. <laughs> we're going to get an extra extra pint in. So that's yeah. one, my, my experience. And, and also acting opposite Joanna Riding, if she's ever listening, Joanna Riding, I, I adore you. And um, she was off the charts. It was the greatest experience I ever had in a musical. Mm. Great, great company. And although Trevor Nunn never even knew my name, um, it was a truly truly great production the other thing that, that comes to mind is is after the first performance of the dumb waiter at Trafalgar Studios mm. and Harold stayed in his seat with his wife and um the audience left and me and Lee Evans and Jason Isaac's uh, and my wife well certainly now what fun enough uh, what happened was this Jason and Lee were very slow coming out of the dressing rooms mm. and Harold's Harold Sonia Friedman suddenly said, I'm going to go and get them. She lost her patience. She's like, I'm going to go and get Harold was like, where are the bloody actors? And uh, Sonia said, I'll go and get them. And (laughs) the minute she'd gone, Harold suddenly in front of me and my wife and Antonia and a few others, Harold suddenly said, I just want you to know that this is the greatest production of this play, the most fully realised production of this play I have ever seen and I have no notes. And, you know, I was just kind of, wow my wife started crying and I, I was went into kind of shock because it was just so generous yeah. and, and whatnot. And, and then Sonia reappeared with the actors yeah. and um, somebody obviously tipped her off because she came, she whispered in my ear, have I missed something? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At which point Harold kind of saw her do that. So now we were all there. Yeah. Lee and, and um, Jason and Sonia and Harold said, uh, Sonia, I think you may have been missing in action when i just said a few words about this production so i'm going to say it again and then he repeated every word of what he'd said he re- he said it all again and then oh, Sonia wow. started crying and lee and jason were like oh my god oh my god and oh, it was a it was an astonishing and wonderful wonderful moment so wow. if you ask me if you ask me things that from a from a 40-year career that stick in my Mind those those two things spring to mind. I could have said a few others as well, but Fantastic. you know, it's, it's it's when it's when you feel mm. your body, the appreciation of the audience, the playwright, your own body says you've done well, mate. You know, you 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 yeah. you, you, you you can let go because you've whatever was asked of you, you've you've done it, and um and, and then to it. share to share that feeling with other people is just just glorious, isn't it? It's yeah. Glorious,
0: and with the man himself as well with Harold. I mean, I said this to you last time, which is the fact that you've not only worked with him, but you knew him as a friend for so many years. And that's one thing I am incredibly jealous of in yourself. And I just wish I could have had a, just one hour with the man, but you had a you well, know, many years. And that is
1: why I'm, that is why I made the documentary was, was yeah. to, to try and find a way to share with other people, the incredible privilege that I, that I had. and And it yeah. was, you know, um, part of my my fate, the mysterious thing that we call fate of my life, was to meet Harold only a year or two after seeing No Man's Land as a 16-year-old. I met Harold um, through cricket and through, through being a cricketer because Harold has a cricket club. He was chairman of the club <laughs> when I was 18, and I'm chairman now. So I'm now doing what Harold did for Gaiety's Cricket Club um, and, um, it, it was the most knowing Harold and becoming not just colleagues with him, but also, you know, it was a deep, deep bond of love and trust, um, and loyalty between us. He essentially adopted me as his, as his son. He told some of his closest friends that he regarded me as, as his son, um, I, I, you know, how how or why that became part of my fate, I do not know. But I feel I've always felt, since I've been relatively grown up, that I had a, an obligation and a, a duty and a privilege to share in whatever way I can. Because many, many actors feel that Harold has something to offer us that is rare and inspiring, inspirational mm-hmm. and Indeed, that is the case. He was incredibly generous. Mm. And he he gave me um more than I can really ever thank him for. Mm. So that's why I made that documentary. And um it, it, if it gives people a flavor of what it was like to to hang out with him and, and have his good faith and his belief in in you. I mean, basically what what, what he was truly really trying to say was, believe in yourself, you know? Mm. I believe in you. Of course, I fucking do. I've seen what you can do, but you have to believe in yourself too. Because yeah. I'm, you know, I'm not a fucking tit to suck on. You, you, you've got to take that in and mm. and make it part of your own psychology, your own resilience. Is to is to say, go to the mirror and say, you're all right, mate. You know, you're doing okay. You yeah. know, there are some good days and bad days, but um, whatever it is, you've got it. You know, believe in that. Believe in that. And that's that's for all of us. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, absolutely believe in that Mm -hmm. believe in it Mm -hmm. and on that note harry i think that's a fantastic spot to finish and uh cool if you just i'll finish the recording if you just hang on i'll say goodbye to you one to one after that but uh god wow such a pleasure thank you for coming back again i'm i'd love to have you back in a one again in the future uh this has been fantastic harry thank you so so much i've loved it cheers just like the first time and thank you again for giving me this Opportunities to create this platform and talk to amazing people not only like yourself but everyone i've spoken to and even more people in the future and um yeah guys fantastic brilliant guys this has been the uncensored critic thank you for watching thank you for listening i'll be back very soon and once more harry burton thank you thank you